Two and a Half Admins, episode 78. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary blog post, Alan, is Unix on the path to BSD. Yeah, so this is uh, nearing the end of our little Unix history series and talks about the transition from Unix to what became BSD. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And you called it, Jim. I think you as well, Alan. ARM's $66 billion sale to NVIDIA collapses. I can't believe anybody ever thought that was going to go through. That had to have been just like a Hail Mary. Who knows? Maybe the regulators will let this go through. And if so, that would be great kind of a deal. Surely nobody was like, oh, yeah, this is going to happen. Yeah, if ARM wasn't based in Europe, well, I guess it's the UK. But uh, yeah, it was just there were too many things. And once China was not on board with it either, that probably didn't help. And, you know, in the end, I think for all of us is probably a a good thing. Just more consolidation isn't going to necessarily help here. Giving NVIDIA a further stranglehold on, uh, you know, AI stuff is is never going to be a good idea. The major reason that NVIDIA would have wanted ARM in the first place is because NVIDIA with its, you know, CUDA technology already has a stranglehold on the types of processors that actually run training and a lot of the inference for neural network stuff. But what NVIDIA was missing was the general purpose CPU. You can't just run everything on a GPU. You do need a general purpose CPU running the whole operating system and also a lot of the times carrying out some of the tasks in the training pipeline that, you know, don't really do that well on GPU threads, which you have tons and tons of, but individually they're just not very powerful. So granting NVIDIA like their own in-house CPU division to go along with that It would have been an incredibly weird thing for regulators not to block that on monopolistic grounds alone, let alone the security grounds of, you know, oh, hey, what if we just, you know, put all this in China's control? The other thing to say here is just customers of ARM are like, you know, we compete with NVIDIA. We don't want to have to buy our CPUs from them. And, you know, you've seen companies like Apple migrating to ARM. It's like, well, they're not going to do that if the sands keep shifting out from underneath them, right? And so I don't think it was going to end up being a good thing for ARM either. I think the thing is ARM is kind of past specifically caring what's a good thing for ARM beyond like getting a payday. And so the plan is to do an IPO to get the payday. I got to say, though, in in an alternate universe where somehow regulators allowed that deal to go through, I would probably experience a bit of personal schadenfreude, you know, seeing how Apple dealt with the fallout right after they made this enormous pivot onto ARM. And then it suddenly got locked up, you know, into another company that that would have amused me. It's also interesting to see the kind of related bits. Sounds like Intel is going to start offering x86 cores by license. That's a weird flex. Like, why would you want that? So it sounds like what Intel's trying to do is basically become a fab company, build x86 chips still, like they have been, but also build RISC-V and build other people's ARM cores and, you know, just own the fabs, be a second like TSMC, which would be fine if they could actually do it, right? But the the whole reason they've been stuck for a while, right, is, uh, is that they haven't been able to get their tech to do the smaller process. I mean, I'm on board with the theory that we certainly need more, you know, advanced fabs and for them to be open rather than, you know, locked into one particular vendor's designs. That all sounds great. It's just thinking of it as, you know, the kind of person who would license a chip. And like, I've already put myself like in this space where I'm custom designing a CPU for my needs. Like, it just feels like a really weird flex to be like, oh, yeah, I want to license, you know, 
x86 for that. Like, eh, really? Because the, the major draw of x86 is it's the thing that everybody has always used and everybody knows how to use and there it is and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Like, by the time you've gotten into that space, you're saying, well, I'm custom fabbing my stack from the hardware all the way up. Seems like it would be a very odd choice to specifically choose x86 for that. Yeah, I'm guessing it's something like, you know, I have this one workload that I would have to emulate back to x86 or something. And if I could just have a core that was good at it. Sure, I guess. But yeah, I, like I'm not sure what the architecture ends up looking like if you have something like, you know, you have your P core and your E core and then your x86 core. Yeah. What? Yeah. And then maybe the whole thing's got RISC-V underneath it, you know, doing security duties or or maybe just an earlier generation of ARM, you know, as your security coprocessor on die with your newer ARM E cores and P cores and your random x86 core for some reason. I don't know. Back in the 90s, there was a gaming magazine, I can't remember which one, that ran this parody ad for a video card. And, you know, it was back in the very, very early heyday of GPUs when it wasn't just NVIDIA and AMD. You had 3DFX Voodoo and you had uh, Matrox was still doing their own GPU and yada, yada, yada. And they did this hilarious ad with like a Photoshopped mock-up of a graphics card with all five of the potential possible chipsets of the day on the same card and are like, you know, it's this nutty, unholy bully base of every GPU on the planet and it shouldn't work, but it does. So it's like, I don't know, maybe you need an Epic core and you need an x86 core. Shit, let's get Via in there. Why not? Anybody heard from Via lately? <laughs> yeah, it reminds me back in the, the way, way old days, I think just before multi-core was becoming a thing, when AMD was talking about Having multi-socket systems, but you'd have like the other processors would be specialized. Like you'd have a Java CPU and an XML CPU. Well, that sounds a lot like what Apple's doing, having special coprocessors for various jobs that it needs to do. It's not just Apple. It's what every smartphone and tablet on the planet does. Right. Uh, and this is just that idea 20 years ago when it hadn't actually been fleshed out yet. For that matter, I mean, it's also what x86 CPUs do. There's there's specialty hardware on x86 CPUs for, like, offload of crypto functions, you know, things like that. The days of, like, literally all we have is a general purpose CPU are, are long gone. There was quite a funny story recently about Mazdas in Seattle getting their infotainment systems bricked just for listening to one particular radio station. Yeah, it turns out the uh, the radio station in question was embedding JPEGs, I assume for like album covers or whatever in uh, you know the, the digital portion of the stream. But they were doing so Mac style. So there were no file extensions in their images. They were just relying on, you know, you parse the file and like read the mime header from it to figure out, is this a JPEG or a ping or what? And uh, much like when my aunt used to email me the stupidest clip art cartoons imaginable in the late 1990s from a Mac with no extensions on it. The infotainment system didn't know what the hell that was, but unlike my Windows 98 systems, when my aunt would email me a five megabyte BMP of a turkey with no file extension on it for Thanksgiving, the Mazdas apparently tried doing some really strange things with that data and ended up corrupting a database that would then in turn cause some kind of untrapped error that would reboot the system. And then the system would try to read the file again. It would reboot again and read, reboot, read, reboot, read, reboot. Fun times. Yeah, that's interesting because like, you know, even once the radio station isn't there, it's still stuck in this boot loop forever. 
And it seems as that Mazda claims the only way to fix it is to replace the entire central media unit for $1,500. Well, they have said that they are going to waive that cost. Yeah, whenever they actually have them. The cost is not the entire issue. The other issue is you can't get them, whether you want to spend the 1500 bucks or not, because, you know, we have this horrible chip shortage endemic. But it just makes me wonder, it's like, hey, how did they design this without the ability to do some kind of offline software update? Like, I understand you'd have to take it to the dealership and they'd have to plug something into it and overwrite the OS or the firmware or whatever it is with a fresh copy. But they shouldn't have to replace the $1,500 in hardware and basically create a bunch of e-waste because the software on it got corrupted. Like, how is there no port that they can stick a USB stick in or whatever and just have the thing reload the software? Well, because it's kind of hardened, you know, embedded industrial stuff and it's designed to be, it absolutely can be updated, but it's designed to be updated from the CAN bus. And in order to do that, it has to actually be awake and not deranged and reading instructions. And that's just how that stuff is designed. But like, even my keyboard for its firmware, it's like, you know, plug this in, hold this button while you plug it in. And then when this flash is let go, and now it's in a mode where it will accept a software update without the OS running. If your keyboard had been engineered to be part of a car, I promise you, it would not be that way. And, And I'm not necessarily championing that. I'm just telling you that's the reality. That's the way automotive stuff is designed. It goes on the CAN bus. It can be updated, interacted with, et cetera, over the CAN bus. But that requires it to be up and running. And typically, those systems are designed to be simple enough and robust enough. That's a reasonable expectation. You figure if it's not, then it's probably bricked and you just chuck it. And to be fair, from the other side, playing devil's advocate to myself, the only reason that we know about this one is because we had like this one radio station do this one thing and basically brick every Mazda that was listening to it in an entire, you know, metro area, large metro area. Without that, you have to wonder how many times has something similar to this happened where, yeah, you know, some silly little thing got corrupted, but the hardware really is actually fine. But you don't know because you can't, I mean, you can't get diagnostics on it either because it's not properly alive and on the CAN bus to be queried. Yeah, like it just seems like like if if I was designing, even with the constraint about the CAN bus, it's like you would think it would have some firmware that could get on the CAN bus and then launch the OS. Like I'm not saying it needs to have something like a BMC. You're Mazda. Why do you care? <laughs> uh, seriously, you are Mazda. You're not Alan Jude. Why do you give two shits whether the occasional random thing can be salvaged via software rather than just ripped out and replaced? What well, I'm just thinking that when building the infotainment system in a car something's going to go wrong with the software forever. There's no way around it. So I would just think about building it in more ways to save yourself. But at the same time, I know that, you know, you don't want to end up with people being able to hack it and put weird stuff on it, their own OS on it or something. So you do need to keep it locked down to a certain degree. And I I mean, you don't need to, but you want to. Yeah. And maybe they leaned in that direction a little too hard in this case. My first thought was surely you'd be able to mount the file system and RM the particular file in question, but you're saying that it's just too locked down to even contemplate doing that. Correct. I mean, imagine your PC is in a titanium cube and the only thing exposed is a USB port. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's specifically the opposite of right to repair and so on. It's like no user serviceable parts inside. <laughs> no dealer serviceable parts inside even. At this point. Well, that's because it's not being treated as like a thing that is sold retail. It's a component. 
and your right to repair is you have the right to buy that component and and you know replace that component in your car yourself or at a third party it has nothing to do with whether you can take that component apart and hack it to the best of my knowledge there's no right to repair legislation that gives you anything like that and this particular component just happens to be $1500 yeah it just happens to be a $1500 component of a you know, car stereo all because a radio station hired some external company who didn't know not uh, that they definitely needed to put .jpg on the end of the JPEGs. No, no, absolutely not. We're not blaming the radio station for that. This is 100% on Mazda. They should have QA'd that. They very clearly did not do anything like, you know, the modern standards of like, you know, hey, let's just run a fuzzer across all the available interfaces and find out what happens. I mean, that would have been some very romper room kind of a thing to test. Absolutely should have come up in QA testing. They didn't do it, and they put it out there in the real world, in systems, where the only recourse was to, you know, burn 1500 bucks on replacing a part. Just the other part I found interesting is the fact that the radio station outsources the adding of this metadata for the digital radio stream to another software company. And that apparently this software company that does this streaming for a living doesn't know about this Mazda bug, or maybe nobody did at this point. But I mean, nobody knew about the Mazda bug because it's not open source. Like, you have no idea what the software does or how it works. It's proprietary and closed and inside a box you literally can't get into. So there's no way for them to know that. Right, just because these cars have been driving around for like five plus years now, I think this is like 2016 model year stuff, right? It's just, I'm surprised it hasn't come up before, or maybe it hasn't, it just didn't affect enough people to, to draw this kind of attention to it. Like you said, you know, when it fails randomly and it only affects a couple of people, nobody makes the connection that it wasn't just a fluke. It was, hey, hundreds of cars in this metro area all broke on the same day. Probably not random. Yeah, so you figure this happened in the Seattle metro area, but like you've got a lot of factors there before you get a big enough group to really notice. So you've got to be in the coverage area of that radio station. You've got to be driving a Mazda within, let's just call it like a five-year model range. And you have to be a listener of that particular station that did that particular thing. If that happens in, I don't know, some town in South Carolina, like do you have enough Mazdas that are listening to NPR for this to come up as like, this is a big grouping and we found the root cause? Or do you just say, you know, every once in a while, these things, they, they just crap out. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. 
And if you want to send any questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. So an anonymous person writes to us, we recently had to set up two-factor authentication on all of our admin accounts for computers that we administer, including a few Linux machines. Two of those machines are handled by our dev team, specifically the person with the database administrator title. The way they manage them is by using Telnet as a secondary root user. And I mean a secondary root user. This user has a UID and GID of 00. On a side note, the DBA didn't know that sudo was still a thing since he's been using this root user his entire career. We were able to have him use a wheel account and disable remote access from root, forcing him to use sudo su-root. This seemed to work since the sudo prompt will enforce 2FA, regardless of protocol. The problem we are facing now is FTP. The dev has many scripts that are hard-coded to use FTP with that user and password. The scripts are in so many places, the dev doesn't know where they are, and this server is important to the main application we use internally. Is there anything we can do that doesn't break scripts but allows that root user full control? We can't enforce SFTP because they require remote access to be Y60 compatible. We can't change the UID of that root user because that would require a full reboot since root started the first init process. The server is on rel 6 if that helps. Any guidance would be greatly appreciated. So there's a second user with UID 00. Yeah. So it means you could change the entry for that user to not be UID 0 without having to reboot. And like you can even you could change root without having to reboot. It would just the process will still be running as UID 00. All the processes have all their stuff based on the UID and then it just uses the password file to do a reverse lookup. So it definitely wouldn't require a reboot for that. I am super concerned that they were FTPing as root with saved, <laughs> like FTP is plain text and they're saving the password. And this is the root user on what sounds like a database machine. Yep. Why would you ever FTP as root? To make sure that you can write absolutely anywhere that you might conceivably want to, regardless of what the permissions say. Obviously, Alan, come on. <sighs> so the answer here really, you know, is there anything that we can do we can't enforce SFTP. Uh, we can't change UIDs. We can't... The, the well, you can definitely change the UID without having to reboot. So you could make that second user called Tour or whatever the silly username is, change it to a different UID, and then use like ACLs to allow them to write to the places they need to write to. Although that you might still have problems with the fact that the file ends up owned as that user if it gets created by them. And well, the, the thing is here, and... Um, I, I don't intend this as an indictment of Anonymous themselves, although I do intend it as an indictment of their company. What's clearly being described here is an unwillingness to change anything and do any actual hard work. The description of the problem has clearly walled off every possible solution as being inconvenient. And okay, you're unwilling to change things, so things aren't going to change. Uh, once you get down to, you know, we have FTP and we can't have SFTP. Oh, and also the dev has hard-coded usernames and passwords everywhere. and We don't know where they all are. And, you know, it's important. Well, either you've got the willpower to get yourself out of that technical debt and figure that crap out and fix it, or you don't. And what this email says to me very much is that while Anon themselves may have the willpower to fix it, the company, it sounds like, really doesn't. So that's the thing that you have to fix first. 
is you've got to get the company to buy into the idea that this is not acceptable and it needs to change. Otherwise, with all of the requirements described the way they are described, your only alternative is to treat every single machine which could possibly touch that machine across the network as effectively also just being that machine because you have no real security alternatives left. I mean, you can make the uh, you can make the database only reachable over like WireGuard or something, you know, to to kind of increase separation that way, but ultimately whatever machine has the ability to reach that that then is well, we just have to allow that machine, you know, FTP plain text access as root. We can't change passwords, we can't change usernames because things are hard coded and we won't look them up. Well, all right. So, like I said, effectively, that just means anything that can touch that machine, you have to treat it as though it's all just one big machine. Yeah, I'm still not over the fact that they're still using Telnet to log in as root. Yeah. So, without the 2FA, the password is available to anyone on the network. What you described there, Jim, is Anon is looking for a technical solution to what is a culture problem. Or you could say a policy problem. Okay. But yeah, e- either way, you're you're absolutely correct, Joe. You can't solve all problems technically. Some of them require policy and enforcement. And it's particularly funny to me reading this one because when we get to the part where the email said, so many scripts are hard-coded to use FTP with that user password. They're in so many places. The dev doesn't know where they are. It's funny to me because that is exactly where in my own real work practice, I would say, well, the fix for this is obvious. We change the password immediately and see all the things that break. I mean, sometimes you do a freaking smoke test. Well, and like you, you definitely be able to see the IPs they're coming from, but you know, that doesn't necessarily help you find the script, but yeah, that's, yeah I'm with Jim. It's at some point you start moving it to the new way of doing it and find out what broke. Yeah. It's, it's like, uh, you know, recently at uh, my new position, we had one ubiquity switch that refused to adopt when we upgraded from a, a cloud controller to a, a locally hosted virtual machine doing the controlling for all of our Unify access points and unfortunately switches, which I really don't recommend. This one switch we knew existed because it was on the old cloud key and reporting in there, but we didn't know where physically it was and we couldn't get it to adopt on the new controller. So the next step was, you know, trying to find this thing. And um, the ubiquity switches, unfortunately, don't have anywhere near as much in the way of like actual reporting and smart management as uh, most smart switches do. So it was proving to be very difficult trying to track that thing down just by looking at like, okay, what's connected to what port of what switch to follow it that way. We looked at it for about 15 or 20 minutes and finally said, well, you know, I don't see a lot of activity coming off that switch. There's a little bit, looks like there's maybe one or two actual machines plugged into that. And the rest is just kind of loop back that we're seeing, you know, traffic coming from larger switches. So uh, I'm just going to unplug it and we'll wait and see who hollers. And, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about with the scripts and the passwords here. You know, you just go, okay, um, this is hard to track down any other way. So we will deliberately change this in a way that will cause things to break that are visible. So like in my example with the switch, we unplugged the switch and it didn't take maybe 10 minutes before somebody came wandering up to the IT door saying, hey, my internet access quit. I, you know, I just, I looked over at my coworker and I said, found the switch. It sounds like a lot of that could be backups and stuff that are not being properly monitored. It might not be as visible as unplugging a switch and someone coming to your door 10 minutes later. Well, if you can't see it, doesn't matter. From my understanding of what they're talking about here, it's some application that's receiving input via FTP. So a bunch of external 
doodads somehow are sending data into this machine where it then gets processed and dealt with. Some of the protocols involved remind me of some old commercial systems like taking a, a giant CSV file from a supplier and using that to update the stock of what's available for sale on the website and so on. Yeah. We're, we're talking again about the willpower to dig yourself out from technical debt. If you don't have enough visibility into your systems to know when they're broken or not, that's technical debt you got to dig yourself out of. So basically what you were saying, Joe, is, well, it might not be obvious everything that breaks when you change that. And I'm like, well, that is also a problem that you need to fix. If you don't even know when the system is broken or when it's working, that's a problem you got to fix. So um, when you find yourself in this issue where you're just like, oh, God, there's this mountain of technical debt. Maybe it's not all my fault. Maybe I literally just walked into this on day one, which happens to me a lot as a mercenary sysadmin. You just walk into this pile of garbage nobody knows anything about, and you got to start from first principles. But again, ultimately, you got to have the willpower to do that. You say, okay, well, I don't know what all depends on this password. I've done my best to try to figure it out. I've talked to all the users about all the things they know use that password. So now I'm just going to change the password, and I'm going to actively watch for things that no longer work. And there's an argument to be made that, you know, if you broke a thing and six months later, you still can't tell any difference in the functioning of your organization and your systems, does it matter that you broke it? Or should you just be like glad that you no longer have to worry about that thing? You have pared it away from your stack as unnecessary. That reminds me of uh, the VPNs that get left running and stuff. If you broke that, you wouldn't realize, but it would be definitely a good thing. Yeah, like there was a, a, the Colonial Pipeline was, oh, we had the old VPN we didn't use anymore that had you know one static password and somebody got in on it because we never cleaned it up um, when we had migrated everyone over to the new VPN. Because you know somebody, may, some system might still only call into the old VPN. And that is a fantastic example because you know just like Alan was alluding to, the correct answer when you're like, well, I don't know, something might still be using that is... Well, okay, you realize, one, you you have not properly documented your systems if you don't know if something is using it, and the way to find out is you kill it, and you watch and see if anything breaks. And if it does break, you go, oh, that was using that. Now I need to go find that thing and reconfigure it to use the new stuff. And while I'm at it, I need to update my documents so I know what I have that's part of critical infrastructure, where it is, how it works, and what its dependencies are. Well, yeah, especially in this case with the FTP account, you can tell... Every IP address is logging in with it, and you can go and change all the ones you know to the new thing and eventually be like, all right, well, there's still these things that are obviously using the old one. We'll either track them down or lock them out and see who screams. Alan, I don't think you're reading that properly. Um, he doesn't talk about the dev has used it on so many machines. He says the dev has many scripts. I think the issue is that just that there's a welter of like little kind of one-off scripts that some dev kind of living in their own world for far too long without supervision has created. So knowing the IP doesn't necessarily help you if there might be, you know, 30, 50 different scripts all coming from the same machine and each one of them individually has a hard-coded username and password that very likely dates back to the 90s. Yeah, well, this is, this is definitely technical debt that's got to be more than 20 years old because they're using Telnet and FTP instead of SSH. Telnet has been verboten for 20-something years, other than some old industrial control systems that should have been using SSH but weren't. Everything should have been using SSH. 
of course, is RHEL 6. So somebody brought the system forward and should have, you know, switched to SSH and away from FTP and Telnet a couple of upgrades ago. But yeah, the answer to in the end then might be find where the scripts are and you're doing a recursive grep for the password. Yeah, it seems really unlikely that the scripts are going to be, I don't know, <laughs> encrypted, <laughs> compiled executables. This does not smack of like any concerns along those natures. Yeah, probably just grep-r password is probably all you really need to find those. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.